Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. When it comes to employment opportunities, wages, even healthcare, Black women are the least protected group in this country. So it comes as no surprise that Black women also suffer disproportionately when it comes to wearing natural or culturally inspired hairstyles. And while Title VII prohibits discrimination on the basis of race and gender, Title VII does not protect Black women from discrimination resulting from a decision to wear their hair naturally. This means that if a Black woman decides not to chemically process her hair and wear it natural, and her employer fires her because of that decision, she has no protection under current federal law. And race-based hair discrimination does not just affect Black women in the workplace. This type of discrimination can also affect Black men and Black girls and boys in school. Fortunately, advocates, legislators, lawyers, and scholars are pushing for a change in the law and the enactment of the Crown Act. Crown stands for Creating a Respectful and Open Workplace for Natural Hair Act. In 2019, we had a robust discussion on the Legal Eagle Review about hair discrimination and the Crown Act. Since that time, several states and municipalities around the United States have passed their own version of the Crown Act. These acts make it unlawful for an, for an employer or schools to discriminate against individuals based on natural and protective hairstyles. These acts recognize that grooming policies banning natural textures and hairstyles constitute racial discrimination. We are also seeing a movement at the federal level. In March of this year, the US House of Representatives passed the Crown Act and it is now moved on to the Senate for consideration. So on this evening's show, we're gonna continue with our discussion of the Crown Act and we are delighted to have joining us for this discussion Wake County District Court Judge Ashley Parker Dunstan and attorney Crystal Richardson. And we're looking forward to hear their thoughts on the progress that's being made in this space. So thank you both for taking your time and joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely, glad to be here. So first, we're gonna get some insight on your personal journeys and how you became interested in the hair discrimination space. And Judge Parker Dunstan, let's start with you. Well, thank you so much, um, Professor Dawson and Professor Joyner, two of my favorite professors when I was at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. It is always a pleasure to join you all here. And frankly, Professor Dawson, you may not know this, but you are actually part of my story. Um, when I grew up, I grew up in Hickory, North Carolina, which is a very small town uh, where I was the only black female in all of my spaces. Um, and in that comes a lot of insecurity of standing out, being different, you know, being told that you're pretty for a black girl, smart for a black girl. Your race was always a part of your identity and who you were. 
Um, and so uh, leaving there and going to uh, Wake Forest University was a lot of the same, um, always being the, the only one in my, in my classes. And I did not grow up in a situation where I saw um, Black women that looked like me, professors, teachers, any of that um, at all. Um, and so it was not until I went to North Carolina Central University School of Law and I was in um, my very first class with a Black female professor of torts, which Professor Dawson, and there you were with your beautiful law down your back. <laughs> um, and I had just never seen that. I did not grow up in that environment. Everyone that I saw had their hair pressed, family members, et cetera, and so forth. Um, and so that was really my first exposure um, to, to a Black woman in a professional setting um, in the position and power that you were in. Um, and that represented a lot to me. I didn't, rep I didn't really realize that further about how that would affect me later until, um, again, I was the only one again when I graduated from school and I was in the Wake County District Attorney's Office and I was the only Black female out of 45 attorneys. And once again, trying not to stand out, I had hair dyed black with a wig on um, in order to not stand any further than I felt like I was already. Um, I knew I wanted to make a difference uh, being a prosecutor, but I didn't want to uh, raise any flags and my identity was tied to my hair, I thought, um, and also just how I looked, my appearance. And so um, I ended up leaving there and going to the attorney general's office where I was back in a situation with black women uh, wearing their hair in a natural state um, from dreadlocks to short fros to everything. And it was just amazing to see all of these black women, these black professionals wearing their hair naturally. Um, and so uh, a month after joining there, I realized I was a, uh, a permanent employee that only be fired for just cause. So I cut my hair off, uh, big chopped it, T-tiny and dyed it blonde and came to work. And I mean, they were shocked. They were like, what in the world just happened? You've only been here a month. <laughs> and it was so freeing for me and so liberating for me to be able to wear my hair in a state and not be concerned about what thought, not being concerned about losing my job, all of these different concerns that women should not have to feel and worry about. Um, I finally had that. And then fast forward to 2017, the very first day on the bench, I made sure I wore my hair in a wash and go because I wanted every attorney that came into my courtroom to know that their hair was beautiful, that they were, their hair was professional and that they can wear that hair um, in this setting and not feel that um, insecurity that I felt the last time that I was in the courthouse. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I have a big grin on my face for so many of the things that you said. Um, attorney Richardson, Let's, let's hear your, your thoughts and your journey that led you into becoming interested in the hair discrimination space. Very similar story, um, definitely inspired by uh, seeing a black woman for the first time come into a place, uh, I was working at a restaurant at, at that time, I was in uh, high school actually, and my hair had always been a source of insecurity for me. I just, you know, I got my relaxer, but then after that, I didn't quite know how to style it, what to do, always late for school and just, you know, struggling to, to maintain it. And so when I saw that, it was like a light bulb went off and and, um, you know, I started to do the research to see how I could get my hair into locks. And so essentially I did that um, probably my junior year of high school. Um, but I think for me, by the time I, I went to college, I did an internship for a Fortune 500 company in Florida and um, interviewed with uh, mid, you know, mid-length locks and, um, you know, got the position, went down to Florida with all my family 
and uh, sitting in the training and excited to get started to work. And I get this tap on my shoulder and they asked me to step out to uh, talk about my hair. And I was just so confused. Um, they, they wanted me to unbraid my hair. And I said, well, I can't do that. It's locks. You know, I would have to cut my hair off. And so it became a thing to, you know, just the point of embarrassment. I had to leave the training, start uh, about two weeks later after my peers because they wanted me to see their lookbook specialist, quote unquote. And so I, I <laughs> go into this woman's office and it's it's really bittersweet because uh, I don't think that their lookbook extended past, you know, cornrows and maybe a few pictures of braids. And so when she saw my locks, she was like, oh yeah, this is fine. This is beautiful. It's, you know, and she's examining me, touching my hair, looking me over, taking pictures. And so part of me thought, wow, I'm, I'm changing the face of their lookbook. But then a part of me felt humiliated and, you know, just embarrassed that I had to go through that process, confused uh, because, you know, I was hired with the same hairstyle and now I get there and it's a problem and, you know, just not quite sure what to do. But fast forward 2019, um, uh, the first uh uh, Crown Act bill is passed in California. Uh, New York uh, Human Rights Commission does their report on race as, as hair discrimination and um, or hair dis uh, discrimination and race. And so in that, I became a uh, part of a collaborative, the Crown Act campaign, and I really became a strong advocate because I didn't want another young woman to experience what I had gone through. And so um, I became very passionate about tracking these bills and really understanding the, the language and the thought process behind it, following professors like Dr. Um, Wendy Green, who really has helped uh, you know, solidify the language of the Crown Act and honestly to help it get passed through the house and and to get it as far as where it is now and so um, as an attorney by trade I practice uh, estate planning and administration but this is something that's so near and dear to my heart that I just I can't help myself but to advocate for the Crown Act. Well let me kind of take take y'all back uh, a few minutes um, and uh, I'm, I'm a little older but uh, can you talk about the reactions of uh, your uh, parents and older folks in the community uh, when you made this uh, decision uh, to, uh, to go natural and uh, uh, to uh, pick up your braids and your locks? And, you know, let's kind of talk about their reactions uh, to it then. Uh, and maybe those reactions have changed now uh, that, uh, you know, you can relate to. I'm glad you asked that question um, because, like I said, I was in high school, and you know, my my family we're from Danville, Virginia, small little country town, and I grew up in Charlotte, and so I've I've always kind of uh, been very independent and and kind of you know beat to my own drum, and so when I saw this you know hairstyle that I wanted, I just went for it, and I remember coming home and my parents kind of looking at me, you know, jaw dropped to the floor. What did you do? Why did you do that? You won't be able to get a job. Um, and I hadn't even considered those things. You know, I, I still had the thought in my head I was going to be an attorney and, and thank God I, I successfully became one. But I, I never thought that that would be a hindrance. And um, it wasn't until I got into uh, the practice of law that I really understood 
why they were so shocked. Um, you know, it's no secret that there are not many Black U, uh, U.S. attorneys. He, I think it's like 5.2%. And so I don't often see uh, attorneys who look like me, especially those with uh, their hair and locks. And so honestly, it wasn't until I spent some time in Durham and, and around my uh, central folks where I really started to see folks who looked like me. But on a larger scale, I mean, it, it's something that is very rare in our field. And so um, I, I, I think that their perception of my locks has, has changed. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I get a lot of compliments on my hair and it's I see more um, individuals wearing their hair in similar uh, lock styles. But back then, you know, you definitely didn't see it. And, and it was it was challenging. And I think that also kind of perpetuated some insecurity around um, how I'm perceived as an attorney. And so you, it's always in the back of your mind, you know, are you impacting your, the outcome of your client's case? How are your colleagues perceiving you? It's, it's not easy, but um, I will say it's getting easier. Definitely. My situation is very similar to Crystal's. Um, I big chopped in 2014. Um, and once again, being from a small town, um, that was wild, extreme, even then in 2015. Um, coming from smaller towns, we did not have the hairdressers or the education and the products and those kind of things. Um, we, you know, it wasn't like DC and New York, you know, so you get to college and these girls have had, they're like, I've never had a relaxer. My hair has always been like this because they had the resources and the education and the stylist. Uh, whereas, you know, me growing up, I think my hair was relaxed probably about five, I mean, five years old, I might've been. I mean, my whole life I was my parents were relaxed grandparents um that was just very consistent the, the eurocentric style of hair uh was very popular so when i big chopped my hair i mean from my sister my mom to my husband they were all like what have you done my husband was not a fan my mom was not a fan nobody was um and it wasn't until my mom received a diagnosis of alopecia a few years later um that she recognized um how serious it was um, and I said, mom, you've got to cut your hair. You've got to cut your hair. Um, and I said, just let go. And I think I inspired them a lot. Um, and so my mom ended up cutting her hair, which has in turn uh, chopped her hair, chopped off all the relaxer and stopped um, pressing it or putting color in it um, and has saved her hair. Um, where now she has a thick head of hair that she's very proud of. Um, my sister has gone natural. My niece has gone natural. So all of the family, all my family members have gone natural since me kind of take that big leap. Um, which was really a big deal. So now they're very happy with it. Um, my husband's happy because he gets a wife every different wife um, because I switch it up from wigs to cornrows to braids to you name it, I do it. My hair out, my hair not out, you know, for all the protective styles, all the things. So he gets a different woman. He doesn't know what he's going to get. When I came home with this wig, he was like, I love it. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but this is not going to last long, sir. Don't get, don't get married because you just married me. Um, but yeah, that confidence comes out of it, um, that, I, that I look forward to uh, every day, just the freedom to make the choice and feeling confident in that is really what all that Black women are asking for on a day-to-day -day basis. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, this uh, evening. Uh, we are talking about the uh, Crown Act and uh, hair discrimination, and I'm sure that uh, many of you have had some experiences uh, with uh, this uh, uh, this topic, no matter what your uh, age is. Uh, we are talking with uh, the Honorable Ashley Parker Dunstan, who is a district court judge over in, uh, in Lake County, and Attorney uh, uh, Crystal Richardson, uh, who is with the law office of Crystal, 
Crystal Richardson, and uh, we are discussing uh, this issue and its, its impact on them and it, their impact on this uh, topic. So I want you to stay with us and we will be right back in a couple of minutes. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks and I'm a 2L at North Carolina Central University School of Law. In 2019, on the Legal Eagle Review, we had a robust conversation about hair discrimination and the Crown Act. The Crown Act stands for Creating a Respectful and Open Workplace for Natural Hair Act. These acts make it unlawful for employers or schools to discriminate against individuals based on natural and protective hairstyles. These acts recognize that grooming policies banning natural textures and hairstyles constitute racial discrimination. The House of Representatives passed the Crown Act in March of this year. The act is now in front of the Senate for approval. Several cities and counties around North Carolina have anti-discrimination legislation, including Charlotte, Winston-Salem, Raleigh, Greensboro, Wake County, Orange County, and Durham County. On today's show, we were joined by Judge Ashley Parker Dunstan and Attorney Crystal Richardson to hear their thoughts on the progress that has been made. Both the Honorable Judge Parker Dunstan and Attorney Richardson are zealous advocates for the Crown Act and have written several pieces on the topic. Judge Parker Dunstan is a graduate of North Carolina Central University School of Law, and she was a district attorney and an attorney general before her judicial appointment. Attorney Richardson graduated from Charlotte School of Law, and she is the managing attorney at the law office of Crystal M. Richardson in the area of estate planning. This is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue this discussion about the uh, Crown Act and uh, hair uh, discrimination. Uh, in that first section, uh, Judge uh, Dustin and Attorney Richardson were able to lay out uh, and present to us some of the uh, reactions uh, that they received when they uh, decided to go into a natural hairstyle, I can recall back in the uh, 60s uh, with the uh, civil rights uh, movement, uh, we uh, came out with the fro. And uh, that was a revolutionary act uh, at uh, that time and commanded pretty much the same kind of uh, responses from people as were uh, described by Turner Richardson and uh, Judge Dunstan uh, earlier. And I know many of you went through that phase where you uh, uh, tested uh, the fro, uh, lived with the fro for a while, and probably now uh, your hair has receded in such a manner that you're no longer able to do one. Uh, but uh, this is a refreshing uh, conversation that uh, we're having, and it demonstrates the progress that we have had uh, in this uh, area because Judge Dustin was with us in uh, 2019 when uh, we uh, first uh, talked about uh, this uh, topic. And at that time, it was an outline. Uh, people were uh, afraid to touch it. Uh, and uh, she was brave enough as a uh, uh, sitting judge uh, to uh, wear a uh, natural uh, style. And uh, of course, Dean Dawson has had her experience uh, 
with uh, this uh, as well. And uh, so let me go back to uh, Dean Dawson and give us your your his, your history uh, with this uh, this topic. Yeah. So as I was listening to Judge Parker Dunstan and Attorney Richardson, you know, kind of share their experiences, so much of it resonated with me. Um, and you know, they were talking about you know being at a from a small town and you know, you sometimes don't get the same type of progressive thoughts that you might get. Um, I, I started locking when I was in uh, DC. Um, I had already done like the big chop. And when I moved down to North Carolina, and this is like 2000, um, and I was starting a law practice with some family members. And so I had my little kind of baby locks that were starting. I thought it looked cute. I thought it was professional and neat. Um, but you know, in the small town of Grand, North Carolina, it was the, an oddity. And, and I was advised that I needed to change my hair in order to be able to practice law and be gainfully employed. And this is 2000. Um, so here we are, you know, 20 years later, and it's absolutely just wonderful to see so many Black women being able to be their authentic selves. And I think that's what this gets to, right? We should be able to wear our hair however we choose to wear it, however, you know, makes us happy, right? We shouldn't feel constrained to a certain standard of beauty. Um, so yeah, just incredibly grateful that you two are sharing your story because no doubt there is a black woman, a young black woman um, hearing what you've gone through, and it will empower them to be their authentic selves. Well, let me just throw out uh, to, uh, to each of you, uh, here. What, what is the Crown Act, and uh, where did it uh, come from, and where has it gone uh, since uh, its, uh, its origination? Well, I'll also say this, you know, just looking back historically, um, enslaved folks were asked to, to cover up their hair. Um, you know, they didn't have their uh, tools that they, you know, herbal treatments, combs, things like that. So they were really just limited to things like bacon grease and kerosene and, and things that are really bad for your hair. To, and they were using that as hair conditioners and shampoos. And, you know, now we're, we're at a place where, uh, yes, we're a little bit more liberated to uh, wear our hair as we choose, um, or at least that's the thought that we would like to think. But, um, you know, now we, we absolutely need these protections because I think what the Crown Act essentially does is it brings awareness that certain hairstyles are linked very close, closely to blackness. Things like bantu knots, uh, locks, braids, fades, you know, the ability to have your hair natural, treated or untreated. Uh, I think the issue is that a lot of, um, like for example, if you Google unprofessional hairstyles, what do you see? You see a lot of uh, black women with their naturally curly hair, with their locks. And there's this air that um, our hair is unkempt, it's unclean, it's unprofessional. And so I think the Crown Act specifically targets that uh, type of uh, grooming policies where employers essentially can um, prevent uh, opportunities, which is, you know, it goes 
specifically against constitutional values that we should have opportunities for all, that um, we should have the freedom of choice to wear our hair however we choose. And so the Crown Act really uh, talks about, again, um, traits that are historically associated with race, specifically hair texture, protective hairstyles, and it's essentially saying that these uh, traits are so intimately connected to race that the two cannot be separated. And it prohibits these types of discriminatory uh, grooming policies that say, you know, you have to be neat and clean and professional and essentially uphold these European beauty standards that are often unattainable for black hair and very expensive, whether it's mental health, financially, um, physical, you know, uh, I think the pull and the strain of, of uh, hair follicles and things like that can lead to alopecia and other uh, chemicals have in relaxers have been linked to uh, cancers and things like that. So it's harmful for us. And so um, that type of impact is, is disparately impacting black folks. And so this bill definitely um, helps pro prohibit some of that type of discrimination. Absolutely, everything that Crystal said. And I think that the most compelling part about so many people are saying, well, why do we need this, right? Well, it's just like what Professor Dawson said is that she could relate to the things that we're talking about. This is widespread. Um, in 2019, I wrote an article that was published in the Wake County Bar Flyer um, that was called My Crown is Professional. And in that women provided testimonials of their experience with natural hair and why they felt like they could or could not wear it. Um, even ranging from what Crystal said earlier, even a jury might consider or harm their client because of their hair. Um, thinking about, like I said, the, the mental health of the woman um, and how we have to think about our hair, whether or not we even like it ourselves, the public's perception of that, et cetera, and so forth. I mean, this is really ingrained in our culture, um, black and otherwise, um, that natural hair, you know, is not something that should be worn. Um, like we talked about our parents and, you know, those kind of things, and they're, they're just trying to help us Right, but at the end of the day, it's because of things like this, it's because the necessity of this Crown Act, it's because of all of this that has gone on for so long, that this act is necessary, that we need to have these difficult discussions because black women everywhere are really struggling um, with their ability to wear their hair. I have so many young women, young attorneys come up to me and say, hey, I've interviewed, should I slick it back? What should I do? I mean, the fact that we even have this discussion is concerning because nobody else, no other race is worrying about their hair, thinking about it, contemplating it, people taking braids out, $300 braids, taking them out because they've got to go to a hearing or something else at work. I mean, all of those things, we're the only ones that have to deal with that. Um, and it's time for everyone to recognize that this is our God-given hair that grows out of our head and should be considered just as much as anybody's nose, mouth, eyes, anything else. It's as natural as that, no pun intended. <laughs> And, you know, what both of you have hit upon in your and sharing your experiences and also talking about the importance of the Crown Act is that we need a kind of a societal change in terms of how you even view, you know, black hair and, and that and this kind of gets to the different standards of beauty. Um, and there's not just one standard of beauty and that, you know, you can have natural curly, whatever your hair texture is it's beautiful. 
Um, so we're making some progress here in the state of North Carolina. We don't have a, a state Crown Act like California and some other jurisdictions, but we do have some cities and counties that are recognizing the importance of this issue. Can you two share your thoughts on the progress that's being made in the state and, and what more needs to be done and how we can help move this forward? And Judge Dunstan, if we can start with you. Absolutely. I mean, local municipalities have um, past um, ordinances um, such as Wake County, uh, Durham County, Crystal can tell you probably more about throughout the state which have um, and this is great but this is this it starts on a local level sometimes but it absolutely needs to be expanded to the federal level and to the state level. Um, there are so many women in these and throughout in any position that should be protected um, and should not have to worry about this. Um, I do think it's great that we are, like I said, once again, having these discussions that these um, communities and um, these counties are taking um, these, these efforts um, to make sure that braids, locks, twists, curls, cornrows, bantu knots, afros, and all of that are all protected um, in their discrimination policies. While I feel like it's a step, uh, we, there's so much more work um, to be done. I completely agree. Um, I think that, you know, there these types of uh, pieces of legislation in the, these localities are just needed as we work towards getting um, the Crown Act enacted in, into federal law. And so I'm excited when I see more and more municipalities taking time to add these protections to their statutes, um, as well as I believe the um, EEO practices have been updated under the Office of State um, Human Resources, OSHR. And so, you know, it, it's some progress towards, I think, the, the greater um, picture here. And, and we need to continue to speak with our representatives and continue to push to um, get this enacted on a state level as well. Um, so I encourage all of uh, the individuals listening, listening here to reach out to um, your local and state representatives and ask them to pass the, the Crown Act. It's very important um, to our uh, health. Um, by, by way of uh, explanation, can you kind of talk about the distinction that's drawn between natural hair and uh, protected, protective hairstyles? What's, what's the difference uh, in, in, in those? Well, I would say natural hair, um, and I think um, Judge Ashley Parker Dunson hit on this earlier. You know, the hair that grows out of our uh, God-given hair. You know, whether it's a, a curly, uh, tightly coiled uh, texture or hair pattern um, that often, like I said, has been looked at as something that needs to be straightened, something that's unacceptable. And when we talk about protective styles, styles like mine, honestly, right before I got on this call, I had it in a protective style. I had my hair braided into cornrows. And what that does is it helps protect, you know, lock in the moisture, especially in the winter and the cold months where um, uh, your hair can be particularly dried out and things like that. It keeps your hair healthy. It keeps it, um, from breaking off. Uh, I think black hair is more susceptible to uh, breakage than our counterparts. And so um, these types of styles are essentially um, what we need um, in, in each individ individual's unique way to keep our hair healthy. Absolutely. I think Crystal hit it right on the head. I mean, for me, um, I have type C, which is very tightly, tightly coiled um, and is also very fine. 
So I have to be very careful understanding that my hair is very fine and um, can be susceptible to breakage, that it's important for me to have um, the thickness or the length or whatever else to just have hair that I keep it protected as well. And so, um, like you said, like Crystal said, based on the weather, I may put it in braids. I may put it, I may put a wig on. I might do a crochet style, which is adding hair to it, um, all different types of styles. Um, and then I might wear it out. And it also depends on scheduling. Let's be clear. Um, natural hair is a lot of work in the sense of my hair is a lot of work. It's a lot of it. Um, it could take up to an hour in the morning to, to do that. So if I want to work out and get my three kids out the door and get to court on time, uh, I have to make decisions about my hair <laughs> and what that looks like and, and way to, to make all those things happen. Um, and so it really goes back to um, the ability of women to have a choice. I'll never forget when I first got on the bench, as I told you, um, my hair was in a wash and go and I only straighten it every, twice a year um, for a trim. And so I had straightened it in the wintertime and um, I went back to my wash and go after that. And an attorney came up to me on the bench and he said, you know, I liked your hair better the other way, being straight. And I looked at him and I said, thank you so much, but I didn't ask you. <laughs> and that's really what it came down to is people feeling like they should have an opinion over how I'm wearing my hair. I mean, I appreciate the compliments or not, but either way, it's my choice and my decision. And either way, it's professional. And that's what we need to keep having that discussion about and informing people. I had another judge tell me in jest, he said, um, you change your hair so much. He said, does it change with your mood? I said, you better hope not. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so, I mean, the main thing is that even with me and role, um, and, and all women everywhere is just to have a conversation and, and raise awareness of the dialogue that needs to be had about this. Um, you know, if they're noticing my hair is different, I'm fine with that. If they have perceptions about what they like better, fine. But once again, it's up to me. Now, speaking to the scope of the uh, Crown Act, because I know now that uh, it has uh, passed the uh, U.S. House of Representatives. It is now uh, in the uh, U.S. Senate, where I am sure it is going to run into a buzzsaw. But uh, does the Crown Act also protect the ability of other races uh, to uh, uh, rely upon it to protect their natural hairstyles and or protective hairstyles? Yeah, I, I think in my research, it can. I think the burden of proof would be that Again, that uh, question of is it so closely related, um, associated with their race um, that it should be considered a protective, um, you know, protected under the class of race. And so things like looking at the uh, history of that particular hairstyle or texture, um, and that could be you know, as much as looking at uh, art and culture and, and things like that to kind of make that uh, connection between um, the hairstyle and, and what's been historically associated with it. But I think that is the burden, that is the question that we would need to answer for it to apply to other races. Absolutely. When I look at HR, one, at two, uh, HR 216, currently pending in the Senate, as you said, I mean, it talks about any anybody's race and national origin. Um, and I know that I've had Hispanic, uh, or I'm sorry, Latina females come up to me, Latina women come up to me and say, I did not even think I could wear my hair curly. I didn't, you know, this is just race for me. Like now I feel like I don't have to straighten my hair. Um, and so it's been really, you know, compelling as well for this. But one thing I love about this act is that it does not say specifically black people only or African-Americans only. It just gives examples of African-American hair and extended and so forth. So I think that anyone could use this um, to further what they naturally have coming out of their hair. Absolutely. That's my interpretation. 
All right, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the Crown Act and natural hair discrimination and the need to have legislation that protects individuals from being discriminated against when they choose or if they choose to wear their hair in a natural state or a protective style that is certainly tied and closely related to their race. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Wake County District Court Judge Ashley Parker Dunstan and estate planning attorney, Crystal Richardson. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I am currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proven leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with our guests about the Crown Act. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, the Honorable Ashley Parker Dunstan, who is a district court judge in Wake County, and attorney Crystal Richardson, who is an attorney with the law office of Crystal Richardson. She is an estate planning attorney and also an avid advocate for the Crown Act campaign. All right, so we've talked about the Uh, legislation that we've seen enacted in cities and municipalities here in North Carolina. We don't yet have a a state law. Um, Attorney Richardson, you talked about the importance of having uh, state laws. Both of you have talked about the importance of having the federal law. So can you share with us why it's so important that we have legislation, laws, and regulations at that highest level, at the state level, and also the federal level when it comes to protecting individuals from hair discrimination at work, and also when we're thinking about discrimination that boys and girls may experience at school. Well, I think it's just, it's really the last thing that you just said. It's for our boys and our girls. Um, We have seen headline after headline after headline about children having their hair cut by teachers, having to, you know, with wrestling or things colored in or whatever else. I mean, people have been ignorant um, about black hair um, and the importance of that, uh, of our relationship with our hair. 
Um, and so I think that education piece for our children so they never have to have these insecurities or think about putting all the thought that we have to put in um, for this, that there's never a question about that. I, I go to speak at schools all the time um, and have for several years. And I just love going and seeing um, these young black girls who don't have a question about hair. They don't even think about it. It's so like literally natural to them um, to wear their hair. They're encouraged to do so. And I just think about how I did not feel that comfortable um, when I was young. And I think about my, my daughter, who's 11 years old and in middle school, who's never seen a relaxer and never will, and how I want her to continue to be confident in her hair. Um, my sons, if they decide that they want to wear their curly hair long or short or or whatever it is, that they have that option, that ability, and no one says anything or corrects them or makes them feel less than because of their hair. Um, so I think that that is really all about and how, ex how extremely important it is. And I do see my role, even as a judge, um, to educate as well for my, for the kids that are in my courtroom. I currently serve in our neglect and dependency courtroom, and um, one, one young man had an had a, a funeral that he needed to attend. And, you know, I just informed the social worker that it was important that this child receive a haircut um, because that is something that is culturally um, viewed in our, in, our, um, in our community as something important in, in making sure that his hair and that he felt pride um, in his hair and whatever choice that he wanted to wear. And that um, same thing with our black girls, I, I asked them, do they, if they're locked, do you need those redone? Do you, would you like your hair braided? What would you, how would you like your hair done for prom? Um, these are very important questions um, that I feel like I even need to ask um, in my courtroom to ensure that all children um, are loved and seen um, and heard, especially in regards to their parents. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And then, you know, I think about um, in 2018, that young wrestler that was uh, forced with the decision to cut their hair or, you know, quit the, the wrestling match. And I think that just sent out waves um, across the country that something needs to be done. Um, I've seen articles about, you know, you know, young children, four and five years old, being denied vouchers and, and things to go to school simply because their hair is in locks. And so it's important to bring awareness to these particular issues, um, not only for our youth, but as you know, folks age and, and get into the, the employment fields. Because historically, if there is an issue with your employer, the courts have said, you know, hair is something you can change and it's not protected under race. And so I think the Crown Act is essential into making that connection that, you know, this is something that is central and fundamental to our race and it should be protected as such. Um, especially, you know, given some of the, the um, cases that um, have happened uh, since the 80s, we think about uh, the American Airlines case. Um, there's uh, a case EEOC versus CMS, the Catastrophe Management Solutions. And the court just has consistently held that this immutability doctrine is, you know, does not protect us uh, when it comes to hair discrimination in regards to race. And so we need something. We need a law a statute to step in and uh, make that connection because the courts just seem to overlook it, not want to see it, not hear it. I I'm not sure there's uh, education that needs to happen around Black hair, but uh, we definitely need the Crown Act to be passed on a federal level. Yeah, well, I would think, though, that uh, as a part of all of this is a need for education, because when you get into these uh, so-called protected hairstyles, there is danger associated with that, uh, because that can also uh, create uh, problems uh, with uh, hair, uh, depending on uh, how how tight tightly it's uh, it's wound. So, uh, how do you deal with the educational piece 
such that people are able to uh, utilize uh, this, uh, these opportunities uh, in, a, in an effective and healthy uh, manner. I think you see more studies around um, black hair. I think Dove recently came out with a study and it, and it really shows, you know, the impact that um, hair discrimination around hair texture and hairstyles is really having on individuals. Um, and, you know, there's, of course, a, a myriad of uh, journal articles about the perception of black hair. And I think, you know, when it, aside from skin color, I mean, it's the it's the you know, one of the top things that can really separate you um, from your colleagues in regards to opportunities that are available to you. And so um, the education piece can happen on many levels, whether it's in your local community or, you know, being a part of these studies, um, educating your legislature, uh, things like that. But I definitely think that as we see more um, people talking about the issue, especially uh, we, we uh, think Ashley Parker Dunstan talked about uh, the education, you know, YouTube videos, things like that. So people are themselves becoming more aware how to maintain and care for their hair. And so um, I think that the education is, is slowly kind of infiltrating the, the mainstream community in regards to what beauty standards are acceptable and not, but um, there's still definitely uh, much more education that's needed. Absolutely. And I really think that what really needs, what we need to hone in on as well is the mental health piece of this, um, how taxing it is already to be um, at the intersection of race and gender as we are as black women um, to be stigmatized on so many levels and, and to be stereotyped. So to already come in with those perceptions, especially within the legal community, um, to come in with those legal of, of those perceptions of you um, and then to have to compound all of that of being seen as an angry black woman or whatever else and then have to worry about your hair. I mean, it's already stressful. And then to add on your appearance is even more stressful than our body images and being more curvy or being whatever else, what we're wearing. I mean, like Crystal said, you look, the first thing you see is our skin. The second thing you see is our hair. I mean, that's just what it is. Um, and so, you know, you really have to be um, aware of our mental health, you know, seek any kind of therapy that we need to take care of ourselves, continue to focus on our own self-care for these. Um, I have hosted a couple of uh, paint and sips, um, natural hair paint and sips, where we have uh, just come in and, uh, you know, convened together over some, some, some wine. And we have painted pictures of ourselves and, and even women that have been relaxed and are not um, looking to be natural have come as well. Um, but one thing that we do at these events is that we, we write down on a card two things. The first card we write down what we hate about our hair, because there's always gonna be something that you're insecure about. So what are you insecure about your hair and so forth? And then we write down what we love. And whenever we get done, those out and talking about them, um, then I have the women tear up the card of insecurity. And then I have them take the card of what they love about their hair and put it somewhere that they're going to see it every day, whether it's their mirror on the way out the door in their car dash, something along those lines. So that way, every day they're reminded of the positivity um, behind their beautiful hair and accepting them themselves and walk around in that security that we should have every single day. Um, that is, is a power that we have within us um, that we need to, to operate in, um, that beautiful confidence that we should have. And so it's important to enforce that um, at every level. And so that piece of education, as far as making sure that we're okay, that's the most important part. That's, yeah, thank you both. Um, and, and so as we're talking about education and, and people feeling more comfortable about expressing themselves, 
we can't help but talk about um, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. So we are all, I know, very excited that she is the most recent nominee for the Supreme Court. We were all watching very intently the confirmation hearings with the Senate Judiciary Committee. And you have this beautiful, poised, intelligent Black woman who has a natural hairstyle. Can you two share with us your thoughts on um, when you saw her in that setting? And, and I'm sure you were familiar with her and her natural hair even prior to that. But what did that mean to you about seeing a judge who will be elevated to the highest court in this country uh, with natural hair? I mean, it was amazing. Um, and, and it went back to just reminding me of how important representation is at every level. Um, I think that was really it, to see that beautiful, qualified, overqualified woman um, that's like me up there with her hair, like me, confident, successful, um, and worthy was just amazing to see and just so inspirational. I mean, I think that's why it's so important for, you know, all of us to, to walk in that confidence. Like I said, Professor Dawson, you don't even realize how you inspired me um, with you walking in that confidence. If you would have listened to that family member, you know, 12 years before I saw you, nine years, excuse me, before I saw you, um, I would not have seen that. And so that representation piece is so vital. But one thing that I really love about it too, is that quite frankly, we are all noticing it, but I haven't really heard anybody else say anything about it. We're all noticing it, but they're not. And I think that really goes to the whole point of this is that you need to see her for who she is and her should not be something that is disqualifying to her or anything that she should have to worry about. I hope she did not have to think about, but she didn't, putting her hair in a, taking her locks out or doing anything else. She was her authentic self. And that is how we should always be able to operate. And I'm so proud um, and grateful for her um, for being her authentic self. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, especially when there's very few um, people who look like you in a workplace, when you when you see another Black person, another sister, you kind of make this look like this eye contact, like this, you know, inter uh, secret just between you two. And I think we saw some of that uh, a little bit when Senator Cory Booker was, was speaking to her. It was like this understanding. And it's like that in the lock community. When we see each other, we know that the lock journey is something that takes time, endurance, and that, you know, you kind of have this uh, connection um, that, you know, I see you. And so I certainly felt that sense of pride and acknowledgement. Um, like I spoke earlier about uh, the rareness that you uh, have uh, Black you know, attorneys in this profession, we're one of the least diverse professions, I think. Um, so seeing someone with sister locks who is, you know, up for appointment um, for the Supreme Court, I mean, it's just groundbreaking. And so um, I, I definitely felt a sense of uh, excitement and pride to see uh, a, another dark-skinned Black woman with sister locks, you know, just doing her thing, speaking so well, answering all the questions so eloquently having, you know, a great demeanor about herself. It was great representation. And I think the world needs to see more of it. And so if you didn't know what Sister Locks was before the confirmation hearings, hopefully, you know exactly what it is now. And so uh, the more we talk about education, the more we can see ourselves in that way, I think the more people will be educated about our hair. But it's expensive. <laughs> 
how, how, how can you help people to uh, deal with the cost of uh, maintaining uh, this uh, new uh, protective uh, hairstyles and the uh, natural uh, and the maintenance of the uh, natural hairstyles? Well, I'll tell you what, Professor Joyner, I am cheap. So I watch all the YouTubes, okay, all the YouTubes. I get my hair from Amazon, the beauty supply store, anything. I'm grateful for, you know, Target has been huge in ensuring even before Walmart that, you know, there were opportunities for natural hair. That was like kind of the first place I went to. I mean, they are, uh, I mean, they have all the supplies um, that you need for all different hairstyles and different types and textures. Um, and so I've been really, really grateful for the education that YouTube has provided on a free basis. Um, that you can look at someone that has your hairstyle type and say, listen, this is what I, this is what I want to do. It's my, it's my understanding also that hairstylists are now focusing and beauty schools are now focusing on natural hair um, and certifying people with natural hair um, that want to do just that type of hairstyle um, styling, which is fantastic too, because if you go to a stylist that does not know what they're doing with natural hair, they will cut your hair clean, smooth off because it's too hard <laughs> to, to maintain or to deal with. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's very scary. Um, anytime that you put your hair into someone else, your, your hair in someone else's hands. And so you want to make sure that they know and care about um, about our hair. And so um, I would just say the cheap route is YouTube and playing around it, playing around with it in trial and error. And that is what I exercise. Yes, I think you're right. It is expensive. I think the black hair uh, care product uh, business is like a $2.5 billion industry. It is very expensive and timely uh, to maintain. But I will say I get excited when I see things. Well, pre-COVID, I would see like uh, hair product swaps and things like that, because we all try all these different products and spend money on it. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Get together with your, you know, your friends and family and, and swap products, share products, give them away. I mean, that is always a good route. I love the YouTube idea. I certainly learn from YouTube. Um, the good thing about uh, having your hair in natural styles is sometimes it can be a little less expensive um, because of the lower maintenance um, in regards to, you know, making it an intricate style. But, um, you know, I, I think the the biggest piece, as uh, Judge uh, Dunkson said earlier, is the choice, the ability to choose how you want to style your hair, whether you want to, um, you know, add some extensions and weave to it, or if you want to get your hair uh, retwisted and, and locked. So, you know, it's, it's definitely something that um, I think we all kind of uh, carry that burden to figure out what's working for us, because we want to be perceived as someone who looks good, someone is professional, and it's not a one size fits all uh, thing. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, when we started out with the uh, fro in the uh, 60s, there were a few products uh, available and uh, people used to walk around with moisturizer in their coat pockets you know, to make sure that it uh, stayed uh, moist. But the creativity that has occurred over the years uh, certainly uh, moved uh, these styles uh, forward. And now you have whole sections in these uh, department stores and pharmacies that's dedicated uh, to uh, African-American uh, uh, hair. So we, we've come, I want to say we've come a long way, baby. Uh, to uh, where we are now. And uh, so I urge those of you who are listening uh, to this uh, program to uh, get behind uh, the uh, passage of this legislation at the uh, local level, because uh, at the state level, uh, because it has a lot of impact and importance on uh, the uh, employability 
of, uh, of, of African-Americans, the ability to work through uh, uh, barriers at the uh, school levels, and we've run into all kinds of issues, and then uh, to contact your uh, state senators, uh, to uh, U.S. senators, I'm sorry, uh, to uh, pro promote uh, the passage of that at the uh, Senate level. So, uh, but I, I want to thank you all for uh, providing us this opportunity to further discuss uh, this, uh, this issue. Absolutely. I want to share my thanks as well. And, and hopefully in, in the not too distant future, we'll be able to have you back as we celebrate the passage of the Crown Act at the federal level. So, but unfortunately we're out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, the Honorable Judge Ashley Parker Dunstan, who is a district court judge in Wake County and a state planning attorney, Crystal Richardson. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, as always, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any comments or questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.